Happy New Year. Welcome to 2018. It's Ben here from Engage With Story. Now, we're still in holiday mode here at Engage With Story, but I wanted to bring you today for your New Year's listening pleasure, a replay of the most downloaded episode of Engage With Story of the 30 or so episodes we've had so far in 2017. Now, this episode was really one of my favourites as well to do the interview. Now, this is with a, a friend and a colleague, someone I've known here on the Sunshine Coast for a number of years now, and she really is a, an interesting character, well worth listening to as we share some more information in this episode about story structure and the changing face of television serials. Now, I know this is actually a great episode to bring to you at this time when most people are having a bit of downtime and probably watching a bit too much Netflix. So enjoy this episode. Once again, the most downloaded episode of 2017. So heaps of people have enjoyed this and I hope you enjoy it too. Story Structure and the Changing Face of Television Serials with Julia Carter. I'm Ben Amos. Join me as we dive deep into how some of the best in business, marketing, content creation and education wield powerful and effective stories to engage audiences and drive action. Welcome to Engage With Story. Do you ever get nostalgic about the way TV used to be? Or when flicking channels end up on one of those secondary stations that only show reruns of old programming with sitcoms and soap operas from the 80s and 90s. Now this is the TV that I grew up with, and like many of my listeners, I'm sure there are countless fond memories as we settle down at a specific time, on a specific day, on a specific channel, to watch our favourite TV show with the rest of the family around us. We found comfort in the familiar characters, the predictable situations and the ability to excitedly talk about the shared viewing experiences around the water cooler or schoolyard the following day. However, thanks to the changing face of media consumption, the internet and the advent of streaming TV services, times, they've certainly changed. And as we've all noticed, so too has the TV programming. The stories being told and the way they need to be told has also needed to change. As we'll uncover in today's episode, there are some screenwriters doing this better than others, and we've still got a long way to go. This changing story structure for TV, it really intrigues me and is what led me to invite today's guest along for a chat. Today's guest is a writer, content marketer, a passionate wordsmith and a Canadian, but we won't hold that against her because she now calls Australia home. She's currently undertaking her doctorate studies in creative writing with a focus on screenwriting for serial television. And when I caught up with her for a coffee a month or so ago, we launched into a seriously interesting conversation that I just knew I had to continue for you guys here on the Engage With Story podcast. She is Julia Carter, and I'm really looking forward to sharing this chat with you today. All right, Julia, welcome to Engage With Story. Thanks for coming in today because you are we are sitting face-to-face, -face, so normally I do these uh, <laughs> podcast interviews over Skype or over, over the internet, but so it's great to actually see you face-to-face -face yes. and to be here to talk about story today, but particularly with your area of interest in story, which is based around your PhD in creative writing that you're currently undertaking and we're going to get to that later but before we do thanks for being here thank you for having me it's 
Very nice to be sitting uh, face to face. Yeah, awesome. You so look excited. What I want to do is explore with you before we get into it, where your love of story came from. So tell us, for people who don't know you, which is probably a good Everyone. bunch of the listeners here, yeah. but people that don't know you, tell, tell me your story and when, what developed your love of story. Yeah, um, so my dad back in Canada, he was a writer growing up. Uh, he always wrote me stories instead of buying me books and all, all that kind of stuff. So I've been writing um, since I can remember. But in particular, my love of writing for television happened um, when I was very young, maybe eight or nine, and I still have diaries where I'd watch Seinfeld and I'd sit there and rewrite the episodes. Yeah. Um, and what I, I noticed looking back at them is I've always been fascinated with why the story has to end. And in sitcoms in particular, they the traditional sitcom model is they have to wrap up at the end of the episode because viewers at that time came back once a week to watch another episode and they they can't afford to have missed any context. So you could tell reading these scripts I wrote when I was a kid that I was very intrigued you know, why did Kramer just return the cantaloupe? What happened after that? Why can't there be, why can't the story kind of carry on? Um, so my whole life I've, you know, been dreaming, I guess, of writing for television yeah. and developing um, developing my own sitcom along the way. And um, I suppose I finally wrote that and pitched the pilot back in 2014. And uh, CB, um, CBC in Canada, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, came back after I sent them the first act. And they said they were very interested and would like to read the whole thing. So I sent them the whole thing. Um, and then I got a rejection letter. And it was very, I guess, interesting the way they worded it was, we loved this, it was funny, but um, it doesn't fit our programming strategy. And that's when I thought, what is a programming strategy? Yeah. And, you know, at the time, 2014, like Netflix had just come to Australia. People weren't really, I didn't believe people were watching as much programming. Was it still relevant? Um, so from there, I've just been exploring contemporary viewing behaviors and how this sitcom genre in particular needs to adapt to so that people want to binge watch sitcoms. Because back to my example as a kid, if you're sitting there watching an episode of Seinfeld and it all wraps up, then what's the incentive to keep watching if you know that Kramer and his cantaloupe are living happily ever after, then maybe you'll go watch House of Cards for a couple hours and come back and watch another episode at a later date. So what I've been researching is um, if we want people to binge watch sitcoms, how can we extend those storylines so that people do want to sit there for a prolonged period um, in, of time. And I suppose it um, at the same time that this story is evolving and I've been working on, um, I've been working on writing for sitcoms in my real day job, um, I'm a content marketer. So I write stories all day long for a very different audience, which is um, our customers. Yeah. So there's a lot of parallels there, whether I'm writing, trying to, um, you know, connect with someone who needs car insurance. Um, what I'm constantly faced with every day is how do I adapt this story for the experience that I want this person to take? And there's a lot of lessons in there. And 
Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. And uh, you know, what I want to do throughout the, the course of this chat is is explore some of those things and, and unpack some of those things in a bit more detail. So you know, I want to go back to to sitcoms there, and obviously you've explained really nicely there where your love of sitcoms came from, and particularly writing for sitcoms. But you know, at its at its heart, what what do you think? Prior to the the Netflix binge watching kind of life that we live now, um, what do you think it is about sitcoms that that worked so well? Yeah, the the thing about sitcoms is they're so identifiable because yeah. the whole thing is built around the idea that you have you have this group of characters that all these crazy things happen to them, but they can't change, and it's this massive frustration that we see in ourselves that um you know all of the all these things are happening to us in our lives we're losing jobs we're losing friends we all these things happen and we try so hard to fix situations and at the end of the day sometimes you just have to accept that some things in life you just have to deal with i think that's what the sitcom is you've got um, a, a group of friends living next door in these apartments and all these things happen to them all day long. At the end of the day, Ross still loves Rachel and they can't get past that. And Phoebe's still a little bit crazy. And, um, you know, Joey is is always going to be that actor who really isn't that good at acting. Like, these are things that we don't want to address in ourselves. But when we watch a sitcom, we kind of, I think, look inside ourselves and say, okay, there it is. There's that. Yeah. You know, there's that familiarity. Yeah. There's that it? familiarity yeah. and and maybe that comfort in knowing I'm not alone and everybody has that same kind of um, frustration. So on the one hand, they work really well because there is humor in the frustration. Like there's so much humor. You know, it's like if you're trying to um, fix a a broken chair and the, you probably have your kids around you and you're trying to break fix the leg and you keep trying and trying and the end you don't get it and they're probably cracking up laughing at you because you tried so hard and in the end you got you got nowhere um there's and do you humor think, in that do you think there was the um the other benefit to sitcoms from a programming a television programming um you know standpoint that because it was on at a specific time on a specific day of the week we weren't recording them or maybe we were on a VHS player or something like mm. that, but most most of the time we weren't recording them. So we had to either watch them at the time they were on or we missed that episode. But because they're sitcoms and each episode is kind of another story um, yeah. and back it's kind of back to the status quo again at the beginning of each episode or at the end of each episode. Yeah. So it didn't matter that we that we missed one, we, we, we still were able to enjoy the series and that's very different with yeah. serial television Netflix style, yeah? Yeah, that's right. That's the really special thing um, about the traditional sitcom and I say that because the sitcom genre has been um, just evolving over time and it's definitely not what it used to be but the traditional sitcom like where you had a, a 30-minute episode and it was like a mini play, everything wrapped up by the end. That was built for network television. So as you said, Ben, people can watch one episode, tune out for a couple of weeks, come back, and they haven't felt like anything has has changed. And that kind of that kind of goes back to that nice feeling in life you get again with the group of friends. Sometimes you feel like you haven't seen someone in years, and you go to catch up, and nothing's changed. Yeah. That's the kind of 
familiarity viewers would get in the 90s and even early 2000s when they would um, watch an episode of Seinfeld and or Friends and then they'd leave for a couple weeks and come back and there's the gang up to their old antics. They can just catch up. But now, of course, thanks to yeah. streaming TV and, yeah. um, and the internet and yeah. DVRs and the ability to record, you know, a whole series of things, even if they're on free-to-air TV, we're kind of no longer, you know, controlled by the, the programming. That's so right. things have changed now. And, and, you know, what has changed? I think so. I, ch- I challenge anyone to try to, to go home and binge watch um Binge watch Friends. It's on Stan right now. It is painful. Like my husband and I tried watching multiple episodes of it. And there's sometimes there's recaps. Like Mm -hmm. they started exploring um, story arcs towards the last few seasons. They tried extending certain storylines over multiple episodes. And you could see that they struggled because the first few minutes of the episode were spent recapping the last. So if yeah. you are watching those three episodes in a row on Netflix or, sorry, on Stan, it is painful because you've just watched it. You don't need that, you don't need that recap. Yeah. And sometimes they're repeating, they're constantly repeating the same old um, jokes so you don't feel like you've, you know, missed out on on a, a joke in the past. So I think what's, to answer your question about what's changed is, um, I, I mean, Netflix... Netflix really changed it all. Back when Blockbuster was around, Netflix came in and they started delivering DVDs door to door and they would give you a piece of paper and they'd say, okay, rate this video because based on what you tell us, we are going to recommend another video. And you don't ever have to think again about what you want to watch because yeah. we we can tell you what you'd like. So that works so well. And we know today, um, block, well, I think I, I think there is still a Blockbuster in Caloundra nearby, I'm not sure. But um, we know today Blockbuster is essentially dead. Yeah. And as Netflix's algorithm got smarter and smarter and smarter, they were able to take this service that they had online, obviously where the data is bigger and better than ever. And I think the more, the better that they got, um, the more they were able to... First of all, they took out ads. So now the viewer is sitting there and there's no ads, which in itself gives them more time to watch another episode. And then logically, they just start thinking, well, okay, we've got all of this data about these people. Now we know what they want to watch so we can start creating it. So now they're creating original content. And that content is so targeted and specified to the people who they know want to see it that it's just they know you know, without fail, it's it's going to work. So on the one hand, you have network television kind of struggling um, to keep up. And then you have, you know, people binge watching these shows on Netflix and they know exactly what you want to watch and they're creating content for you. And then somewhere around that, you have advertisers and marketers who are like, where do we put our ads? Because okay, we can put ads on television, but are people watching television? We're slowly losing demographics over there, but we can't put them on Netflix. And I think the common denominator between all three is we're all, we're all storytelling um, and we're all trying to reach an audience. And we all kind of have to figure out how um, the times we're in now will dictate the kind of stories that, that we're trying to tell. Yeah, so when it comes to advertising, story structure in traditional 
TV script writing. Yeah. Um, you know, it was really focused. Am I right in saying it was really kind of focused around those ad breaks in the way that they kind it, of structured yeah. a story? That's the biggest, the biggest thing. And yeah, you hit the nail on the head is the entire, um, like the sitcom structure in particular was literally built around commercial breaks. And I mean, there's nothing more frustrating as a writer than if you're trying to write a sitcom and you look at the traditional structure, which is modeled after Freitag's pyramid, so you've got the um, you know, your beginning, middle, end, and there's inciting incidents and there's a climax all around commercial breaks. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to fit that mold, and you know that the reason you're trying to fit that mold is because someone out there is trying to sell something. It's it's an archaic, archaic model. Mm. Um, but the thing is, we still kind of write like that because we haven't. We're as much as Netflix, you know, has it's huge and it's been around now for a while. We haven't, as writers, really explored the implications um, of how binge watching should be affecting our storytelling. I mean, it's obvious, okay, there's no ad breaks, but what does that mean for your characters? When should things happen to them and why? That's a piece that I think we still have to figure out if we do want to um, maintain their interest for for that binge watching session. So I think anyone who's consuming, you know, television shows these days is, is recognizing whether consciously or not the, the change and the shift that's happened in the stories that are being told to us yeah. and how they're being told. Absolutely. Um, you know, and I think, you know, for many, they probably don't even really think about it consciously. You know, you and I probably do more than others, but yeah. um, we don't see that same kind of sitcom approach on, on TV these days, it's, it's somewhat dead. But I'm interested to ask you, do you think that idea of a sitcom or situational comedy mm-hmm. is dead in this binge-watching era or is it just does it need to be revived? Um, I think the – it's a very good question. I think, I think it's not dead. I think it's, um, it's broken up. It's been, you know, completely broken into a million niche categories. It's the, really, it's the long tail is what we're looking at. Um, you used to have one sitcom. You had one traditional sitcom, one traditional structure that writers could follow to write a show. It was very, um, very scientific kind of driven. Your storylines had to interweave at certain parts. Now what we have is born out of that a bunch of niche categories um and you have you know zany main characters working in stores and you have suburban dysfunctional families and all that kind of stuff and you have uh you know dark comedies and improv comedies and the sitcom doesn't really resonate the amount of people i've spoken to and they've said oh sitcom yeah like that show fargo like Fargo is mm. funny, but that's probably about all that has in common with a sitcom. And, yeah. and so many people just, um, it's, it's a sign of binge watching really and of these subscription video on demand services that give us more content than we ever knew was possible. They're putting a million niche categories in front of us. Why just cater for one genre anymore when you could be looking at you know, a million subgenres 
So there's that. really just there's really just not that clear delineation between genres anymore. The, would you say that? Yeah, absolutely. A good example is if you um, there was a study done by the Atlantic, and you can look it up online. The um, Atlantic um, look up at the Atlantic micro genres for Netflix, and they went in and they found that there were. Um, just thousands upon thousands of micro genres within the Netflix platform. And by um, putting a certain number in the URL, you could populate all of these different types. And it went down to, you know, like Asian romance with a serial killer. Like these are actually tiny, tiny genres that Netflix is grouping content together. And if they know that you're interested in, all those little things, they'll show you these, you know, five or six or 600 different programs and they're specifically for you. So I think sitcom will always exist as an overarching way for us to, to, to speak about it. You know, in, in the industry, it's a nice, easy way to organize our content. But we know that within that big sitcom genre, there is a million little microgenres that have been born um, because of what we know about our customers and because of what they're looking for. It's interesting, um, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, you know, w- which came first, the chicken or the egg kind yeah. of scenario of, you know, did these microgenres kind of start to evolve and therefore we had to categorise them or because of our ability through computer algorithms and things, you know, through Netflix, Amazon, to categorize things in a much more finite way, yeah. has that led to these micro genres? You know, which it's interesting to think which one came yeah. first. Well, I think I think what's happened is um, the freedom that we have, and it, it really started with cable television. HBO started breaking the boundaries of the kind of things we could put out there. Um, you know, the second you you remove the interest of advertisers and you don't have to cater around those commercial breaks. The more, the less sensitive and politically correct and all that you have to become. And so these smaller genres started to evolve and particularly on subscription video on demand services, um, you could bring a show like House of Cards there that they were shopping around at all of these other networks and everybody was saying no because it pushed too many boundaries and there was a scene in the very beginning, this is a spoiler alert, where Kevin Spacey Um, you know, strangles a dog, like that kind of stuff you can't show on network television, but you take it somewhere like Netflix and yes, they have the audience for it. And yes, they have the data proving it's going to be a success and no, they don't have um, any advertisers to try to please. And I am a firm believer, um, both as a marketer and as a writer, you can never please two audiences at once. And so if you're writing television for a network, you can't please your advertiser and your viewer at the same time. Um, because the second that you try to do one or the other, you know, one of them's going to lose because they're different people and they're different personas and, you know, they want different things. So these niche categories were perhaps born out of um, the recognition that, yes, there's a very small category who are interested in watching movies about uh, crazy shop owners in the 
Middle Eastern Canada, right? Maybe there's like a couple hundred of them. Yeah, well, that's my favorite. That's genre. Your, yeah. I knew. <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought it was, um, and that's mine as well. So there, there's two of us. Yes, there's a very small audience for it, but those people. We know exactly what they want. They're going to be engaged, uh, and then we'll be able to show them more of the the kinds of things they like. And if you have enough of those small audiences in the long tail, then eventually you have the majority. And that's how these subscription video on demand services are um, are yeah are winning. And you know it's really no different to. Um, to cable television, when that kind of first emerged, it was okay. There's all of these major, all of these you know major um, networks out there that are gathering up masses. But what are we doing for local content? And what are we? Who's showing our you know community sports team? You get enough of those little channels, and you end up reaching a very important audience um, that the bigger players are ignoring. Yeah. Well, I think this is such a, a really interesting thing to explore and, and discuss, particularly for people who are consuming, you know, media and television shows these days, which, mm. you know, I'm sure there's a huge percentage of the audience of this podcast who are actually TV script writers, but there's probably a much bigger percentage, <laughs> so. probably a much bigger percentage who are TV consumers. Um, yeah, so I that's think that's true. really interesting. But, you know, what I do know is that you know, the people who are listening to this podcast are business owners, they are marketers or content creators mm. themselves. So, you know, based on kind of what we've talked about so far, yeah. you know, what can we, or what can those people, you know, business owners, content marketers, creators, what can we learn from this changing, the changing face of, of television serials and, and the way it's being structured? Um, well, I actually, so there's, there's three things that I think, business owners and creators and writers and marketers can learn from this. And there are three things that, these three things I remind myself of every day um, at work when I'm writing. So, you know, the first is let, um, let the story dictate the length. So even a few years ago, um, you know, marketers were so concerned about how long should my blog be? And, mm. and I remember, uh, you know, I remember writing blogs and there was this big argument, should it be 500 words? Oh, Julia just wrote 1,200 words. It's way too long. And they'd knock it back and make me write 500 words. And, you know, I was always annoyed at that because I thought, I can't tell the story I want to tell in 500 words. Um, I think that concern needs to go away because if you look at original content that these subscription video on demand services are creating, look at um, the OA, look at Stranger Things, even look at Fargo, which um, which was just a cable series. Every episode in Fargo is a completely different length. And the reason why is because there's a story that needs to be told. I did and not realize that. You I've must go back. It's fascinating. Yeah. Every episode is a completely different length. And um, there's a story that needs to be told there. And you you can try to put storytelling into a box. But the second you do that, you kill the story. Mm. You have to be led by by the story that you want to tell. And, it, you know, I promise you, if it's a good story, your audience is going to find it. So don't be concerned whether you're writing a copy for your website or you're writing a Facebook status or you're writing, a, you know, a poster or you're writing a blog or you're writing a TV script. 
don't be concerned with how long your ideal audience wants it to be because you can't tell me that people won't read a story if it's long. Look at Harry Potter, look at Lord of the Rings, look at Game of Thrones. People are reading and rereading these books because if you can't, yeah, you can't put down, you just can't put down a good story. Yeah, and when the medium doesn't constrain the output, yes. um, whereas in the old model of television, it was very constrained to those half hour you know, time Ex- windows. Exactly. And now online we don't have those constraints anymore. So why why constrain the story? That's it. Based on the medium. And that's um that's exactly what I've been doing is that original script I wrote that was twenty two minutes long that fit perfectly into the sitcom model with all the storylines. I've been evolving it in line with my research. And I can tell you now it's not twenty two minutes anymore. Um, Because I've taken this advice and I can tell you my day to day job that when somebody says to me, that is too long, your newsletter is way too long. People just like images in newsletters now. I fight back and put it out there. And then the data shows us that it had an excellent, uh, it had an excellent open rate, had an excellent click through rate and people were engaged with it. So don't be afraid um, to, to be guided by your story. And I think the the segue into that is don't um, don't be don't be worried that data will stifle the creative process because I think if you're a writer listening to this or if you're a marketer listening to this, there's always going to be the concern that when you look at data, it's going to tell you to do something, and sometimes that's going to go against what you want to do, um, and whether you're at work and you know, it happens to me all the time that I write something at work and my boss or somebody says, okay, that, that is a great idea for a campaign or that is a great idea for um, a website, website copy, but show us the data that tells us that people actually want to see that. Yeah. And sometimes I look at the data and it turns out, okay, that's not really, that's not going to work out that way. Or maybe you're a script writer and you've got a great idea for a show, but if you're working somewhere at Netflix, they can pull the numbers and say to you, point blank, that is not going to work. We actually don't have that audience here. So that can be really hard to hear. And you might think, oh, no, that's going to stifle me creatively. I don't, I just want to, you know, write my idea out. Um, but I guarantee that that data should actually be used to shape your story. And if you aren't using that data in a smart way to say, okay, what can we keep with the story I've written and what is the data telling me to change, then you're missing out on something. And more often than not, what you're missing out on is just inspiration. Mm. Um, You know, writing this sitcom now and looking at the data I'm looking at, I can tell you it used to be set in a certain place and now it's set in a different place. And I never would have picked that place, but I'm so glad I did because the story's flowing so much better. It's little things like that, that every day as marketers or business owners, if you know, you think you've got a really great story, but just, just check it. And there'll be some, some way that the data will help you, um, move that story along. Yeah. I think that's a good takeaway for, for those people who are putting together campaigns around their business and around the stories that they want to tell that look at the data, but I, I like that. And don't let it stifle your story yeah but look at how it can improve your story improve the effectiveness of that story that you do want to tell yeah and 
And then I think off of that, and you know, the last point is, on the one hand, you've got you've got all this data that can help shape your story and that can tell you what to do. But most importantly, don't forget to be original. Um, in marketing and advertising, and as a business owner, it, it is far too easy to look around at your competitors and see what they're doing well, and say, "Oh, that's great. We're going to go do that too." Or it, you know, frustrates me sometimes when we're coming up with an idea for for something, a newsletter, and, and someone in the room goes, "Oh, I really liked this line from this email that I got. Let's use that." Well, we yeah. can't use that because we didn't come up with it. So the bottom line is. Yeah, the data is going to help you shape your story. But at the end of the day, you have to be original because if you copy someone else's story, first of all, it's not your story to tell. Um, and secondly, it's not going to be engaging because your audience, it, I mean, this is something more, a takeaway more so from um, my my company, UE, is we've always done things very differently and we've been a challenger brand that comes out of knowing our customers are all very, very different. We treat them all differently. We speak to them differently. We do things differently. And I think as marketers, you just have to remember that what works well for one brand might not work well for you. And if you can't find a way to tell a very original story, you shouldn't tell it at all because it already exists. And no one wants to read 5,000 versions of Fifty Shades of Grey or yeah. You know, uh, Lord of the Ring knockoffs, do they? They'll always go back and read the original because that was the, the best story that. Yeah. yeah. So take inspiration from um, and learn from what other people are doing, but yeah. be original. Yeah, yeah. Tell it in your own way. So, and, yeah. and the best um, example of that, really, I can't think of a better network that's doing that than Netflix. If you look at shows like The OA, um, or like Stranger Things, these are highly original shows that, you know, you can think of, you can see where they've taken their inspiration from, sure, and, you know, they're nostalgic and all of that, but um, if you look at interviews with the writers and the showrunners of those shows, they will say to you, this idea I had was so original and so niche that people didn't want to pick it up because it was such a risk, and those are the risks that end up paying off. So if you look at some original content on these platforms and you might get inspiration for your own business of, um, of how to take that kind of risk with your own story. Yeah, that's awesome. So just to wrap up here today, I'm really interested to explore with you where you think this is going. So, you know, we've talked about the changes that have happened over the course of, you know, the last handful of years around, you know, changing viewer habits, which has led to the change in, the way that content's being created. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about, you know, just switching back into television and and television programming, what's what's yeah. going to change? I know you, you can't, you don't have a crystal ball, you can't <laughs> yeah. read the future, but where do yeah. you think we're going with this? Um, I don't, I don't think things are going to change that much in terms of. I I think we are where we're at now, which is we're binge watching. And we're, we're binge watching offline. So recently Netflix, um, with their new subscriptions, have given people the ability to download the content and kind of watch it in their own time. I think we're going to continue consuming in our own time at home. I think there's going to be less and less network television. I think eventually network television is going to become a place for live events like sports and um 
the Arias and the Grammys and all those kinds of award shows. But um, the effect of that is, and this is really important and I guess crosses nicely with marketing, the effect of that is when we were writing for networks, we were writing for mass audiences and we had to please many people. And when we were watching network television, we were watching it with people because it's in our living room or it's in our basement. We're crowding around a TV at a certain time of night with friends or family. When you're watching things online, you have to remember you're one person and you're in bed or you're on your couch or you're at your kitchen or you're on a train. You're not writing for a mass audience, you're writing for one person. And I think marketing as an industry needs to look at that as well. And yeah. too often in the content marketing world especially, it's how do we say this to get the most, um, the most, the biggest open rate. Well, to get the biggest open rate, maybe you have to write 1,500 different emails because you are talking to one person, one person.